Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard? I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And listeners may notice that this episode was slightly delayed. And for once, it's not Jack's fault. (laughs) Thank you, I guess, Jennifer, for (laughs) recognizing that. Uh, In all the years I've been doing this, I've never really had any kind of a tech glitch. This was the first time. So, Jack, I feel like you and I are now in. We we have another thing in common. (laughs) I really, these backhanded compliments are just so wonderful, Jennifer. Thanks. Well, anyway, Jack, it feels like a million years ago when we on this show were talking about something called critical race theory. Do you remember that? <laughs> it does. It feels like a lifetime ago. But yes, it's, it's, uh, it's in my memory someplace. And since then, the sort of causes of outrage just keep morphing. And now we are on to something that the right likes to refer to as quote-unquote gender ideology. And Jack, I just wonder, I feel like a real sense of urgency about, about this issue and how sort of how dangerous it feels like it's quickly becoming, how worked up people are getting, and the fact that it seems like vulnerable kids are themselves the target. Yeah. Thinking about the parallels with the you know so-called CRT controversies of you know roughly a year ago, the thing that strikes me as being different this time is that whereas people who had gotten themselves worked up about the ostensible teaching of critical race theory were focused really on teachers and school leaders, and and unfairly so in my opinion, um, they were at least focused on adults. Whereas this feels and is uh, very focused on children, on young people, uh, which is not to say that I'm not concerned about the rights of trans adults, but we're talking about a vulnerable subgroup within an already extremely vulnerable population. If ever there was a situation where people are punching down, this is it. And so to me, this feels even more urgent than the conversation around the teaching of race, which is not to say that gender identity issues take precedence in our country over race-related issues, but it is to say that there is more of a clear and present danger for vulnerable young people. And, And I don't think that that is recognized among those who are doing the most damage right now. Um, And if it is, then I think it's particularly uh, discouraging and really enraging that they don't care how many lives they chew up along the way. Now to the main event. Regular listeners may recall that we did an episode last year called How Pronouns Became Landmines. It starred teacher, trans activist, and co-host of the Southern Queries podcast, Aubrey Calvin. And Aubrey was basically warning us that as bad as things were in 2021, they were probably going to get worse. Well, Aubrey, you were right. 
This year set a record for the number of bills aimed at LGBTQ Americans and trans youth in particular. So we wanted to revisit the topic because it feels so urgent right now. And we have two guests, both of whom share that sense of urgency. Robert Chevalo is an advocate for trans kids and their families. And two years ago, he and his family relocated from Arizona to California, in part because the increasingly extreme political climate felt like it was aimed right at them. Arizona is one of those you know, very red states that has been attacking trans kids, uh, the trans population, LGBT folks in general. And as much as uh, you know, my family and I could put up a fight and give a voice to, uh, to our families, it wore us out. And so we moved. We moved to a safer state. Leaving Arizona has made life easier. But Rob wants people to understand what it's like to be somebody's target and why it matters. Just that constant buzz of constantly being scrutinized, constantly worrying about who's watching you for whatever reason, making sure that you follow the rules, weird suspicions that other parents have that think, you know, oh, you're, you're a groomer, you're a pedophile because you're supporting your gay or trans kid. It's a buzz that's always there. And I think people don't quite understand it wears you out and it's omnipresent. And when that's gone, like it has been, like it has been here in California, it is wonderful. It is a wonderful relief. If it's not your kid, if it's not someone you love, you don't think of it as a big deal. You can just say, oh, well, it's nothing. It's not nothing. It's everything. Now, it may seem like the sudden obsession with trans kids and what conservatives call gender ideology is new, but this battle has been brewing for years. Before the obsession with trans athletes and pronouns, there were the bathroom bills that swept the country in 2016. And Rob could see what was coming. Six years ago, the Arizona classical charter school that his eldest attended, part of the Great Hearts Network, implemented what it called a biological sex and gender policy. My youngest is transgender, and we had, we had a good experience with the school. We liked the teachers, we liked the environment, we liked the curriculum. And we had every intent of sending my youngest to Great Hearts also. Unfortunately, in 2016, they teamed up with Alliance Defending Freedom and wrote what, as it turns out, to be the most anti-transgender student policy in the country at the time. With some perspective, you see a lot of the very, very early things that are becoming more and more common. Uh, they were written in this policy with the assistance of ADF. The Alliance Defending Freedom, a conservative Christian legal group based in Scottsdale, Arizona, is a driving force behind the effort to curtail LGBTQ rights around the country. Anywhere these efforts pop up, they are right there in the middle of things. But at the time, Rob had never heard of ADF. In fact, when he first saw Great Heart's new policy, he assumed it must be some kind of a mistake. I was really prepared to have just a quick conversation. Like, well, this must be some sort of mistake. I figured we could just get it cleared up with some paperwork and, you know, maybe a, a statement at a, at a school board meeting or something. But no, it, it quickly became clear that, you know, there were going to be barrier after barrier after barrier if I wanted her to attend school as a girl. So my daughter, for example, if she were to attend there, she would have had to cut her long hair to a boy's length. She could not wear any jewelry. She could not wear any makeup. She would have to wear the polo shirt and the pants. She couldn't wear the jumper or the skirt. And of course, she would have to use the boys' bathroom. She would have to line up with the boys when they did their little kindergarten lines, on and on and on and on. And that's exactly what we see today. It's exactly what's being rolled out today. It's more than just bathrooms. I'm going to call you this name, or I'm going to use these pronouns, or you have to wear this shirt. You can't wear that dress. With some perspective, the policy there, Great Hearts, crafted by ADF, was a precursor to what we see now. 
Rob's daughter, then just four years old, did not end up attending kindergarten at Great Hearts. She went to a district school instead and now attends school in Northern California. But in the meantime, that extreme biological sex and gender policy, well, it didn't stay in an Arizona charter school network. I sort of halfway joke, I'm just mad all the time. I mean, the reality is you could just about snap a line from North Carolina down to Arizona. And that's that's the new Mason-Dixon line, as far as, as far as I'm concerned. Things are changing so quickly with these laws and orders like Glenn Youngkin hands down or DeSantis or uh, Abbott in Texas to what the legislature passes, to what's being enforced, what's being not enforced. If I want to go to any of those states, I've got to do some research. My family is no longer welcome in some of these places. You know, we're not going to Texas anytime soon. That's for sure. My parents, they live in Florida. And I've already told them, I'm really nervous about going to Florida. My other in-laws are in North Carolina, the home of HB2, where a lot of this stuff started, you know, not allowing any transgender people into, you know, the bathrooms of their choice. You know, I'm not comfortable going there either. And, you know, any kind of road trip across the country, well, you know, we're going to take that northern route. That's ridiculous. We're in the United States of America. I should be able to ride my bike across the whole country if I wanted to, you know, and, and with my kids in tow. And we should be enabled with every single right that we were born with. And, and that's just not the case. Rob says that even the people closest to him don't quite understand what he's so worried about. But it's all too easy for him to imagine a scenario in which he and his family are in a place where they now have fewer rights and things go horribly wrong. As let's say we go to Texas and uh, we get into a car accident. Nothing major, just like a fender bender. But cop has to come and write a ticket and looks my name up online or something. I can create sort of a paranoid fantasy. But all of a sudden you have these mandated reporters involved and then you have my family separated from each other. And this sounds like just like a paranoid cascade of events until you realize, no, that's like, that's like what could happen. That's just unreal. That's just unreal to have that, to have access to the country taken away just because some, you know, essentially religious zealots are relying on fantasy, on, on this fantasy danger, on this fantasy boogeyman. So, Jack, I want to bring you back in because I need some help understanding the bigger picture here. So we are dealing in this episode with an attack on the rights of a very specific subset of students. But it got me wondering about what seems like an outsized role played by schools when it comes to the enforcement of student civil rights. And I just wondered if you could pithily explain to us how it is that schools came to play that role in the first place. Yeah, it's a really good question. Uh, and I think that it's important to preface this by saying that, you know, that the downside of regulation is red tape. And the upside of regulation is that there are rules that are put in place for a reason and often for the purpose of protecting people and ensuring that they aren't discriminated against. And in this case, uh, it really is 1964. Uh, that we want to go back to. So I think a lot of people would think it's actually a decade earlier, right? The Brown decision was in 1954. But the Brown decision, even the Supreme Court recognized that it was toothless. They came back a year later and rendered a second Brown decision. But it isn't until 1964 that Congress enacts a comprehensive Civil Rights Act. And it's specifically Title VI of that that ends up being really important for public education. And one of the things that really happens there, if you read some of the scholars who write about 
racial integration in the schools, so people like Gary Orfield, right, it's not until 1964 that the U.S. Attorney General is authorized to bring legal action against segregated school systems. And that's when you really start to see the tide turn because when plaintiffs seeking school desegregation can all of a sudden, free of charge, get representation from the Attorney General's office, all of a sudden there's much more momentum on behalf of those seeking, you know, not just racially integrated schools, but equal opportunities. So I know we're going to talk about Title IX later, and, and I'm trying to stay on Title VI. Different acts, right? Title IX is the Higher Education Act. Title VI is the Civil Rights Act of 1964. But I do want to just jump ahead of the Higher Education Act, uh, which uh, is 1972, and just say, like, if we're thinking about rules and regulations and civil rights, it's also really important to flash forward to 1975. So the law that most people know today as IDEA or the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act was actually first passed in 1975 and it was called the Education for All Handicapped Children Act. And that was a really important safeguard for families with kids with disabilities, right? So prior to that, children with disabilities were predominantly denied opportunities to learn. I think the figure is something like one out of five kids with disabilities had access to a free and appropriate education. And that law changed it, right? Mandated that any young person, regardless of disability status, have access to a free and appropriate education. So we can see that the same kind of motivating principle that was underlying the 1964 Civil Rights Act is also underlying this very different piece of legislation. And whenever you want to talk about Title IX, I'm happy to talk about it because it's the same underlying principle there as well. Our next guest is a pediatric psychologist and an advocate for LGBTQ youth. Dr. Natasha Palopoulos also happens to be in Florida, where she has been watching with growing concern as policies at seemingly every level target some of the most vulnerable kids in the state, the very kids she works with. Dr. Palopoulos, or Natasha, as I'll be referring to her, has been writing and speaking out about how dangerous these policies are. And as part of her outreach efforts, she contacted a certain podcast. So I was just scrolling Twitter and I was looking through the Twitter feed and I saw a tweet by you because there was some connection we had. And I was like, who is this person? So I, I clicked on the podcast and I clicked on you. And I was like, I need to send a message because I thought it'd be such a good fit because we're living in this world where now there's like, there's politics, there's education, there's youth mental health, and all these things are merging, and they need to be discussed and dissected with different expertise. Now, we do get a lot of listener mail. I love it. But to my knowledge, this was the very first time we've been contacted by a pediatric psychologist. And in many ways, that's a sign of the times. Florida's new Don't Say Gay law and the copycat measures it's inspiring across the country are explicitly targeted at schools and students. So if you care about public education, ignoring this stuff isn't an option. What we're seeing unfolding across the U.S., we're seeing it has roots in specific states like Texas, Florida, Alabama. Given that I'm specifically in Florida, I've seen a severe impact of 
what is dubbed the Don't Say Gay Bill, but is actually referred to as the Parents' Right and Education Bill. And what that bill enacted was that gender identity and sexual orientation are banned in any classroom discussion for kindergarten to third grade, or what they wrote is in a manner that is deemed not age or developmentally appropriate. A lot of critics of the bill had mentioned that this is very poorly written. It's very vague, and that may have been intentional. That way it can be applied in a lot of different realms. And we're seeing this bill, which is now a law, has popped up across the country. It popped up in Ohio, in Texas, in Indiana. So it's almost like spreading like wildfire. And now we're seeing a trend that the most anti-LGBTQ plus bills have been introduced in 2022 in the U.S. A little more background on Natasha's work. As a mental health professional, it's her job to assess kids in distress and figure out how to support them. As a pediatric psychologist, I work in a children's hospital. So any child that's medically admitted, I'm a consultant from the psychology department. So I'll see any child that's medically admitted that would benefit from a psychological evaluation. And then I follow them throughout their care and make determination for recommendations following discharge. So it could be following a suicide attempt to a child who's undergoing a workup for a kidney transplant. I see a lot of different patients and I'm always assessing for gender identity and sexual orientation because we know that LGBTQ plus youth across the board for trauma, for anxiety, for depression, for bullying, for discrimination, they are at significantly higher risk. In other words, Natasha sees kids for all kinds of reasons, but there's one unifying thread among virtually all of them. School is the number one stressor in their lives. School is a major part of any child or adolescent's life. I mean, that's the majority of where they're spending their day. So when schools take away affirming spaces, when schools remove anti-bullying policies regarding gender identity or sexual orientation, when teachers are being asked to out students, when students don't feel safe at home and now no longer feel safe at school, it's absolutely going to be impacting their mental health. So for me as a psychologist, I'm seeing that when patients are coming into clinic, when I'm seeing them in the hospital, I mean, that's a huge risk factor for suicidality. Post-pandemic, there's lots of talk of a youth mental health crisis. Just last year, the American Academy of Pediatrics declared a national emergency in youth mental health, which is why Natasha has been doing everything she can to raise the alarm about how measures like Florida's Don't Say Gay law are making a bad situation worse. When the adults, when the decision makers in communities are giving the message to kids that an aspect of their identity is wrong, it's shameful, it shouldn't be talked about. When that type of hurtful rhetoric is put onto kids, they're interpreting messages of something is wrong with me. I don't fit in. I'm not good enough. I'm ugly. I I don't deserve things. And those types of messages from adults are really harmful for kids. So when we have those messages coming in, we have bullying coming in, discrimination, and being just a child in this world right now, I mean, that's like a compounding factor after compounding factor. Now, you've no doubt heard statistics about LGBTQ kids and suicide risks, but there's some important context that you might have missed. Something that's really notable about LGBTQ plus youth is that they are not inherently prone, meaning they don't have some type of predisposition for increased psychological distress or for increased suicidality, but rather it's this minority stress, right? The discrimination they experience, the stigmatization, the parental, the social rejection that actually puts them at risk. So as a community, as 
a school, we want to mitigate those factors. And now what we're seeing in states like Florida is we're actually exacerbating those factors. So we would surmise that the outcome for kids from a mental health standpoint is going to be worse. In other words, lawmakers around the country are busily enshrining into law policies that seem guaranteed, even intended, to make vulnerable kids even more vulnerable. For Natasha, that is a source of immense frustration, especially when supporting these kids just isn't that hard. I wear a sticker on my badge that identifies that I'm a safe provider, meaning I respect people's gender identity and sexual orientation, and that I'm a safe provider to disclose that information. And I was in clinic and we were consulted for an adolescent, 14-year-old with a medical condition, and there was concern for depression and anxiety in a recent suicide attempt. So when I was assessing them, I asked very objectively and very openly about gender identity and sexual orientation. And in that moment, after they looked at my badge and my sticker, they disclosed that their gender identity was trans and that they haven't spoken to anyone about this. They don't have family support and that that's been really devastating for them, that they don't have their pronouns or name respected at school or at home. And that was actually what led to the suicide attempt. And it was just astounding to see like almost a sense of relief to tell someone who is respecting them and honoring them. And then I was able to get appropriate resources and to get providers in the community that could help this patient. But had I not had that sticker, had I not been a safe provider, I don't know if that information would have been shared for me. And I don't know if I could have stepped in to provide that support or give those recommendations. So, Jack, I think of us as having a very clear division of labor, and I'm not just referring to the part where I do all the work. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not taking the bait on that. Keep going. So I think of your role as looking back through the annals of time. Does time have annals? Well, anyway, so it's, it's a good it's a good thing that that job is left to me. I think so. Your job is to survey history and fill us in on what's happened before. And then I often think that you end up making us feel a little bit better about the world. <laughs> and then my job is to look ahead into the future and warn about some approaching calamity. <laughs> yes, that's right, Cleo and Cassandra. That's us. So today I have a job for you that I think neatly captures your role and mine. So I am really worried about the Biden's efforts to overhaul Title IX. I already see signs all over the country that this is having just, it's setting off an explosive backlash. And I think to understand what's happening, we need to just know a little bit more, first of all, about where what Title IX was, because I think of it solely in terms of university athletics. I think you're not alone there, Jennifer, in thinking of it that way. Uh, so Title IX of the Higher Education Act of 1972, I, th I think I'm remembering the date correctly. If I'm not, go back and wipe the tape. You're the historian. Yeah. <laughs> well, people will lose confidence in me if I get it wrong. Uh, I, I think a lot of people think of it as being about uh, – women's sports and scholarships. And and they're not wrong that that's how it was used for several decades, although its origins uh, were really about a broader recognition of the rights of women and about the pursuit of gender equity. Uh, in fact, you know, women had pursued this kind of recognition of gender as a kind of protected category in the same way that racial identity had become a protected category there uh, prior to that, right, through the Civil Rights Revolution. And 
the way that it really played out for a couple decades was in terms of inequities in scholarships. So, you know, the, the men's football team would have like 80 scholarships and then, you know, there'd be like a, a women's uh, tennis team where they had five scholarships. And that was just such an obvious inequity that I think a lot of time was spent counting the number of scholarships for women versus the number of scholarships for men. And the unintended consequence of that kind of bean counting was that a lot of colleges and universities simply cut their football teams, making a lot of alumni really mad, who then blamed women and blamed the federal bureaucracy for getting rid of their beloved, probably losing football team um, and ushering in, you know, like a women's field hockey team that went on to win national championships because, you know, they finally had scholarships to, to bring in top athletes. So that, that was the story for, for a long time. And then we really in the past 10 to 15 years have seen Title IX used for the purpose of ensuring that women are safe on campus, free from um, sexual assault particularly, right? I think that's where we saw the most action around Title IX. And what's happening now is that the Biden administration is really moving towards a view of gender equity that aligns with our notions of gender in the year 2022, which is to say that they're not thinking about biological sex there, right? They're thinking about gender and they're thinking about gender as a protected class category uh, such that, you know, any violation of the rights of, let's say, a trans person on campus would be a violation of federal law. Well, it's funny, Jack, because listening to you, I did, I really got this sort of sense of a, you know, a steady march towards progress over time, right? Like I see <laughs> you're on horseback, there's an Aaron Copeland uh, <laughs> soundtrack playing in the background. And I guess what I'm so worried about is you already see at, you know, at the school board level, school boards passing a resolution saying that they're not going to abide by the by the Biden administration's proposed overhaul. Um, you see uh, um, political ideologues recognizing that this is just going to be more gas on the on the fire that's fueling the the school wars. So as I as I look to the next round of this, I have to say that I am not feeling particularly hopeful since you used the metaphor of pouring gas on the fire, that a, a part of the challenge right now is that the right continues to throw anything that resembles tinder onto the same fire such that all of these issues, which really are separate from each other, are being bound together. And so CRT uh, is related to, you know, quote unquote, gender ideology is related to uh, you know, Marxist teachers is related to COVID-related school closures, which I ostensibly shouldn't have happened, is right? That all of Don't these Don't forget things, the furries. Right, oh, my God. Right? All, all of these things are being thrown together, right? And so, you know, metaphorically, that there is a lot of Tinder right now. Um, and then what's happening is that a lot of really dangerous rhetoric is the gasoline in this metaphor. And 
you're really getting people worked up in what is often really close to mob mentality. And these are issues that need to be treated separately. They are each different from each other. If we lump them all together, it's really easy to forget that there are human beings involved, um, that they need to be treated on kind of a case-by-case basis in order to be fully understood. And all of that really concerns me. It concerns me that we are moving away from deliberation and consideration and towards a kind of unthinking, reactionary anger, which, you know, sometimes leads directly into violence. And we already see forms of violence playing out across the United States. Now back to our special guests. We heard earlier about Rob Chevalot and his battle with an Arizona charter school network and its, quote, biological sex and gender policy. Well, Rob did not go quietly. He organized a campaign that was joined by a growing group of Great Hearts alumni, and he even held Socratic dialogues at Great Hearts headquarters. Remember, this is a classical charter network. Great Hearts did ultimately change the policy thanks to Rob's advocacy, but his work was just beginning. At the time, he was leading a nonprofit group called the Arizona Trans Youth and Parent Organization, and his goal was to provide basic information about trans kids and what they need. I really, really felt like I had a duty. I mean, I felt like I, I was in a good spot where I could help our families and guide the schools that were around. They were thirsty for this information. As I saw, there was nothing, there was no support to kind of help answer some of these basic questions like, you know, is being transgender a mental illness? Uh, there was no clear place from where teachers, where schools could go to just say no, and this is why. I mean, they could do the research, they could look. I mean, you know, everything's there and available, but they're so ridiculously understaffed and overworked. I was lucky. I was able to, you know, compile a bunch of information. Um, I created sort of a trans 101 sort of class, and I started really giving that out, offering it for free to anybody who would listen. And it was taken up right away. When I first started off, it was maybe, you know, one or two schools a month, turned into one or two schools a week. I was doing a, a couple a day uh, at, at one point, and it was just an hour-long presentation given by me, just some dad, and uh, just to go over the basics, you know, no, it's not a mental illness. Yes, you should use the pronouns. Here's why a bathroom is important. Here's why these kids want to be who they are. But he also experienced the limits of what one dad's advocacy can do, a lesson with powerful implications in places like Arizona and other states that are quickly moving to curb the rights of trans students. So that's the good news, is that there was support in the community, in the sort of general population. The bad news was there wasn't support anywhere else. You know, at the time, the superintendent of public instruction there in Arizona, she believed, you know, the earth was 6,000 years old and dinosaurs were fake. So there was no support from the head of schools. There's no support from the charter school board. There was no support from as much as teachers wanted to help. They weren't in a position to rock the boat and to stand up and, and yell and scream and say, this is what we got to do for these students. The principals didn't want to go against the aggressive school board members who are anti-trans, anti-LGBT, because they need a job. Even people at Great Hearts, even allies at that charter school, would look me in the eye and say, you know, I really want to help you, but I can't lose my job doing it. Fair enough. You know, it takes a, a, a special kind of ally to really stick their neck out and put their job on the line to do what's right. We need those allies. We need those people. But that's really hard to do. And so looking at it over landscape, the bad news was there weren't very many people willing to step forward. 
There were people thirsty for the information. There were tons of people wanting to do the right thing. And there was a lot of pressure from a lot of naysayers to keep everybody in line. These days, as Rob advocates for trans kids and their families, the one message that he returns to again and again is that the world is changing. In the day-to-day, recognize that we're the ones, you know, we, meaning the uh, heterosexual cisgender community, we're the ones who have to change. This idea of a gender binary is, is made up. Things are much more complicated than we would, we would like them to be, and that requires some thought. That requires some thinking. It's going to require some time. People want instant answers, and, um, and there isn't one. There's going to have to be some discussion. There's going to have to be some change, and change is uncomfortable. And I think that's where you get a lot of pushback, too, is you know, nobody wants to change anything. Everyone wants to think that everything's perfect and anything's rolling along. Well, you know, it's not. We're not including all of my children's friends in activities. We're not including all of the kids in the classroom. We're not including all of the types of marriages that there are. We're not supporting LGBTQ teachers. Why can't my kid's teacher, Mrs. Whoever, talk about her wife? That's a part of a family dynamic that should be presented in class just as legitimate as as heterosexual normative. Um, So it's it's urgent. It's there. You know, what can people do? They can, you know, support their friends, support their family, and just be open to change. Like Rob, Natasha spends a lot of time these days providing basic education to pretty much anyone who will listen about why it's so essential that schools be affirming spaces for LGBTQ kids. We know that a good majority of LGBTQ plus youth live in non-affirming homes meaning parents may not be accepting of aspects of their identity. So school can be a safe haven, right? So having a teacher or a counselor that they can express or report what their experience may be. And knowing that that doesn't mean that they will be then outed to their parents because outing someone can have significant, significant impact on their mental health. Part of what's so frustrating right now for advocates like Rob and Natasha is that the specific things schools can do to help LGBTQ kids feel less isolated are so small. A sticker here, an ally there. But those are precisely the sort of measures that policies like Florida's Don't Say Gay Law are aimed at. Natasha says the law is already having a chilling impact, and it's still unfolding. Some schools have now said that they will out students, meaning that if a child or adolescent opens up about their gender identity and it is not cisgender or they discuss a sexual orientation that is not heterosexual, that the school could report that to the parents. I mean, imagine how detrimental that would be for a child if they're not ready to come out and if that home environment isn't safe. And then the second thing we've seen a few weeks ago in Miami-Dade County is the school board voted against the recognition of October as LGBTQ plus history month. So when we go back to thinking about that original bill, you know, it said K through third grade or in a way that's, quote, developmentally not appropriate. And now what they're stopping is they're stopping major Supreme Court cases, landmark cases being discussed with 12th graders. So this actually is a disservice to kids because they're not learning the history of the U.S. and the history of a specific community. Talking to Natasha, I was struck by how hopeful she sounds, given that the vulnerable population she serves has been turned into a conservative punching bag. She says that she has her moments of despair, but then she recalls that she's fortunate enough to be able to speak up on behalf of the kids she cares so much about. I think I'm grateful that I live in a world of a healthcare system and specifically a psychology department. So most people are aware that gender identity and sexual orientation is an aspect of oneself and that 
it's on a spectrum and there's fluidity and we are inclusive and affirming. I think the reality is when you step out of a healthcare environment, you see that a lot of people don't have that knowledge and that there's a lot of stigmatization. And I think in those moments, it's really disheartening. And that's why a lot of podcasting, writing articles is trying to reach people that may just not have the understanding or the awareness of, hey, this is a group of kids that are already experiencing so much psychological distress. You're now putting laws in action that are actually going to worsen their mental health. Giving the knowledge and the information to the community is the way that I've tried to do that within outside of my healthcare system. It's hard though, because there's also the other side that continue to think that LGBTQ plus people are groomers. There's a lot of rhetoric around pedophilia, which is absolutely false. Um, So you have these two opposing sides. It seems that in a lot of states, one side is dominating and that's the side that is spreading misinformation is spreading accusations and is not looking at major entities like the APA or the AMA or the American Academy of Pediatrics for their info. A huge thanks to our special guests, Rob Shevelo and Dr. Natasha Palopoulos, for their advocacy and their insights. And Jack and I will be right back to talk more about the coming war over Title IX and to reveal the topic of this episode's In the Weeds segment for our Patreon subscribers. Here's a hint. Calls to abolish the Federal Department of Education are intensifying. Might this have something to do with efforts to roll back civil rights in schools? If this intrigues you, just go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast to become a supporter. So Jack, As we wrap things up, I want to just step back and look at the landscape that we've been describing from a much greater distance, because I feel like what often gets lost in these kind of just the steady drumbeat of horrible, horrible news stories is the bigger picture of what's playing out right now. And what I see playing out is that you actually have on the right an effort to start to roll back the expansion of rights that really begin in the 1960s. Things like women's rights and gay rights and now trans rights. And the, you know, among liberals, you have an effort to continue to expand the terrain of rights. And so these things are now coming to a terrific clash in schools, but also in the kind of policies that govern schools. And so I think often when we, you know, we look at these issues, it's hard to understand where, you know, where does this come from? Why, why the kind of nastiness and mean-spiritedness that's aimed at a group of such vulnerable kids, but it's actually part of a much larger project. You have to connect it with the other things that are playing out right now, in, in, including the Dobbs decision, right? And so I'm just wondering if you, like, if you agree with that take. Listening to you, Jennifer, I'm thinking of what I think of as the Eric Foner story of American history, right? A story of a perpetual progress, expanding rights, always being beset by resistance and, you know, lurching in its progress, but nevertheless, um, a movement towards a freer and fairer society. And, And if you look at polling across the decades, across the generations, what you see is that the initial push to expand rights is always resisted by some right? Some are just less ready for that. Um, 
largely because of cultural differences in the United States and that those play out across class and racial lines is no surprise to anybody. But I think we're in one of those moments right now. And what is so disturbing to me is that instead of using positions of leadership to guide us through a difficult moment, right, to bring Americans together, whether for the purpose of deliberation or, um, you know, to just navigate carefully through our differences. Instead, the different readiness of people to recognize uh, a new and expanded set of rights is being weaponized for political gain. And it's really cynical. And that is maybe the part that's most difficult for me uh, to, to wrestle with, right? It, it's easy for me to accept the fact that we're all in different places and it's going to take some time for some people to process this and to adjust to what will be in some ways a new world. It's harder for me to accept, maybe impossible to accept, that there is a, a cynical use of this moment for political gain. Um, you know, that people see that there is a vulnerable population and many of them don't vote, right, if we're talking about those under the age of 18. Um, sure, they're highly vulnerable. Sure, they are deserving of our love and care and support. Um, but, right, we can exploit their weakness right now and we can exploit the challenge of this moment for uh, political gain and and perhaps even pry people away from their sympathy uh, as human beings um, and towards a kind of political resentment that will be useful for wins in the ballot box. And so I think it's really important for us to recognize both that we will move past this, right? Like the broad contours of history indicate that we will move past this uh, and eventually trans rights will be as passe as lots of our other rights that we recognize and accept today. But I think it's also important to recognize what the cost will be uh, between now and then and why certain groups are going to be forced to pay that cost. I also think that it's important to recognize that the sort of Title IX reform that we were talking about earlier, that it the mindset of the Biden administration is that everyone has accepted this new world. And so you feel like that there, you know, there's a sort of just get over it attitude that informs the effort to codify the next phase of progress. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I think makes it so explosive. Mm -hmm. And it's also what makes the Department of Education itself such a target, which happens to be the topic for our Patreon subscribers in the weeds. <laughs> so seamless, Jennifer. I think that was one of my most seamless it transitions ever because I do really think, like I'm going to lay out a little theory for you about what I what I see happening and I'll be very interested to... Why to, don't you lay it out right now? No, 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 because it's it's a pay for. It's a pre premium content. Yeah, it's where, <laughs> you know, like voucher programs, we're shifting the burden of some of the cost onto our users. <laughs> So if you're interested in hearing us talk about how efforts to dismantle the Department of Education relate to this 
fraught move uh, moment we've been discussing, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast and become a supporter. You just spend a few dollars each month and you get cool extras like a reading list or trip into the weeds. Oh, I thought you were going to then keep going. No, that's that's it. That's all you get. So, so if you like the thing that you get already, um, you know, remember that you don't have to pay for it. Uh, and uh, maybe do some other things that uh, you don't get paid for, like go on and give us a rating. Uh, Jennifer loves the stars. She's, she's a quant. Uh, she's into the number five. Um, and me, I'm more of a qualitative person in this regard. Really, really appreciate. Really, it, I like reading the stories. Sometimes I put them all in, in vivo and I code them and look for uh, emerging patterns, grounded theory, you know. Um, and uh, we've got a Twitter handle, as you all know, uh, at Have You Heard Pod. We love when you're on, uh, on your social channels sharing the latest episode or your favorite episode or people lately have been... Um, I think, discovering the show and saying like, hey, I just listened to episode number whatever. Uh, that's really fun to see. Uh, the mailbag is a fun place for us. Uh, we've gotten lots of great ideas for shows from you, but it's also nice to just hear from you and know that people out there are listening. Uh, and I think, you know, that's that's it. Just uh, keep up the good work, people. And where should they go to, to how can they see your TikTok? Oh, um, it's uh, at dancing professor yeah oh how i wish that that was actually a thing <laughs> on that note i'm jennifer berkshire and i'm the dancing professor this is have you heard <laughs>